Welcome to Cowan Insights, a space that brings leading thinkers together to share insights and ideas shaping the world around us. Join us as we converse with the top minds who are influencing our global sectors. Hello, my name is Charles Ree, Cowan's Healthcare Technology Analyst, and welcome to the Cowan Future Health Podcast. Today's podcast is part of our monthly series that continues Cowan's efforts to bring together thought leaders, innovators, and investors to discuss how the convergence of healthcare, technology, and consumerism is changing the way we look at health, healthcare, and the healthcare system. And joining me today to host is my colleague, Eric Asaraf from Cowan's Washington Research Group. And in this episode, we'll be discussing interoperability in healthcare which is the fancy way to say how data can be more easily shared among various stakeholders, which has been a unique problem in the US healthcare system. We have though over the last decade seen efforts to resolve that problem, first through the HITECH Act, and then through the 21st century's CARES Act. As part of the CARES Act, most recently, we've seen the introduction of TEFCA, the Trusted Exchange Framework and Common Agreement, which sets out a number of guiding principles for the establishment of a nationwide health information network. And to dis- discuss this topic and more, we are delighted to be joined by Mickey Tripathi, the National Coordinator for Health Information Technology at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, where he leads the formulation of the federal health IT strategy and coordinates federal health IT policies, standards, and programs and investments. Mickey, thanks for being with us today. Sure. Thanks, uh, Charles and Eric. Good to be here. So, Eric, why don't you kick it off? Yeah. Uh, so, the idea of data interoperability in healthcare has been something discussed for quite some time. Uh, so maybe to kick it off, can you remind our listeners the role ONC plays within HHS and uh, what their responsibility is when it comes to interoperability? Sure. Um, so ONC is, uh, we're, a, we're a staff division in the Department of Health and Human Services, which means we're a part of the secretary's office at large, um, and we report directly to the secretary. And uh, we were founded in 2004. Um, by an executive order signed by then uh, President Bush. And then we were you know, sort of further instantiated um, in, uh, in, in uh, statute by the High Tech Act in, uh, in 2009, 2010. And you know, from the beginning, the mission has been to coordinate federal health IT activities, to um, you know, get strategic alignment of federal health IT activities across the different agencies across the federal government, as well as to coordinate the creation of an interoperable um, uh, health IT infrastructure in the market generally. So there's a coordination aspect uh, that's you know, with the market itself as it relates to the US government uh, you know, interacting with the market and trying to push the market forward toward you know, open industry standards and interoperability infrastructure, ultimately to improve the uh, quality, safety, efficiency, affordability, and equity of care to, uh, to individuals. So that's, you know, at large is, the, is kind of our mission. That doesn't tell you a whole lot about what we do. Uh, we, what we do is, you know, a variety of things. We work on standards. Um, so we want to be able to, you know, try to get as much of the industry using open industry standards, meaning non-proprietary standards, to allow systems to interact with each other. Um, and, uh, and so we do a lot by, you know, in the way of helping the standards development organizations, as well as help to, you know, identify standards that, that uh, we strongly recommend or sometimes make into regulation um, to be used by, uh, you know, by, by health IT activities. Um, we also do um, certification of electronic health record systems. And, uh, and then finally, we do, uh, you know, health information exchange interoperability um, activities, which is uh, to connect up those systems in networks and via APIs and other kinds of things. So a lot of work, you know, all related to ultimately better use of health IT to improve the individual's lives. 
That's that's really helpful. And so, you know, this past January, you announced the release of Tefka. Uh, you know, starting with the trusted exchange framework part, the, you know, the agency outlined several core principles for the uh, for the exchange. And at the core of the trusted exchange is this concept of the health information network. You know, the way it's written, you know, it indicates you expect a, a number of uh, HINs or HINs operating across the country uh, to form a nationwide network. You know, can you define for us what a what an HIN is and what type of organizations uh, do you envision applying to be uh, QHINs or qualified health information networks? Right. Um, yeah, sure. So, you know, HINs are, are, are entities, organizations that facilitate the exchange of information among independent, um, you know, sort of clinical entities and other healthcare stakeholder entities. Um, and that's, you know, that's really it when we think about, um, you know, think about platform economics and, you know, how we've seen, you know, sort of platform technical and business models, uh, you know, grow in almost every other part of the internet economy. In a way, a health information network is very much that. It's about, you know, the ability of an organization to be able to facilitate the exchange of information among a set of parties under a common set of rules, common set of, uh, you know, um, um, contractual arrangements, and a common set of expectations. And usually that um, involves a common set of standards as well to make, um, to make those transactions easier. And you know the idea then of the trusted exchange framework, where it points to health information networks, is to have you know a, a set of of organizations that can help to facilitate um, you know interoperability among you know all the thousands and thousands of thousands of uh, of you know of of you know electronic health record and other health IT systems that exist across the country. Um, it's really hard to you know to get um, you know every one of those. You know, kind of individual, uh, you know, health IT users, for example, or EHR systems to just connect with any other user without some kind of network conventions that help to establish, you know, what are the rules of the road um, for exchanging information, particularly in healthcare. You know, unless you have a good understanding of who is the, you know, who is this organization that's requesting information from me? How do I understand, you know, whether they are uh, are who they claim to be? whether they are authorized to, you know, to have access to the information that, um, you know, that I'm about to provide and whether I have an expectation about what the use of that data is going to be, um, then it's very difficult to be able to, you know, sort of have exchange at scale. So that's one of the key functions that, you know, that networks in general provide, not just in healthcare, but, you know, but uh, uh, in any industry. Uh, the other thing that I think that networks, you know, really help with is, um, is just getting everyone to agree to a common standard so that you can essentially have one connection that allows you to connect to many, many other parties. You know, basically the multi-sided platform model, um, so that I don't have to build individual variations of you know technical approaches to you know to connect to every other system, which you know which creates you know exponential growth and complexity. <clears throat> the idea here is if I can connect once via one way, and then be able to you know have a variety of use cases and connect to a variety of other organizations um, through that singular pipe, then I've created a whole bunch of scale and convenience for everyone. Charles mentioned uh, quality health information networks or QHINs. How do they differ from the regional health information organizations uh, created after the High Tech Act was passed? Yeah, so QHINs, um, actually, it's, it's not quality, it's qualified. Um, so a QHIN is basically just a designation under TEFCA. So there are, you know, there are health information networks that, you know, that live out in the wild. Um, and as you point out, that some of them came out of high tech where um, certainly ONC had, you know, uh, uh, you know, had a, you know, almost a billion dollar program of funding different um, experiments, essentially in different states um, related to health information exchanges. Some of those, um, you know, some of those, uh, you know, kind of died. Um, a number of those continued and have sustainable models today. And they just, you know, live out there in the wild. 
And then there are nationwide networks that, you know, that live as well, Care Quality, Commonwealth, eHealth Exchange, all of those are, you know, kind of private sector uh, networks that are health information networks, uh, you know, performing those functions out in the market. The idea of TEFCA is that under a common governance framework, that there would be certain eligibility criteria that an organization would have to meet in order to be one of the networks that is, you know, one of the pillars of interoperability exchange under the TEFCA arrangement. So that means that there is, you know, a vetting process that happens to say, well, there are certain, you know, requirements that, you know, that we want to be able to have those, uh, those, those uh, health information networks meet um, as regards, you know, the, um, the governance structures that they have, their financial stability, um, their ability and experience in um, transacting at high volume, very secure, uh, you know, healthcare compliant uh, uh, transactions. Um, a number of criteria like that, we want to make sure that, you know, that if they're going to be a part of this core, you know, nationwide infrastructure, that they, you know, they, that they need that bar. So that's what the idea of QHIN is, that the Q, it means that you've been qualified um, to participate or to be one of those anchors um, networks in the TEFCA, you know, in the TEFCA model. And the eligibility would be determined by our uh, nonprofit partner, the Sequoia Project, um, who we call the recognized coordinating entity, but they're basically the operating organization that is partnering with the Office of the National Coordinator to actually, you know, run and manage the, the, uh, the, the TEFCA network. What is the business model then for QHINs going to be like? You know, I, and you mentioned before, you know, there's some of these Rios are still living out in the wild. So they've obviously hit upon a business model. But, you know, you, you said earlier, like we can have, you know, you, you want to have a network where, you know, entities can just connect with each other on a, a same set of standards like, like the internet. Um, you know, could we, I mean, is this something where like Amazon could, you know, AWS could become a QHIN or, or Verizon can come in and set up a QHIN, um, you know, maybe kind of give us a sense for, you know, examples of what type of entities you envision becoming QHINs. Sure, absolutely. Um, yeah, so, you know, without getting into whether any particular organization or company, you know, would qualify, um, I would say um, just in general, for sure, um, you know, just, uh, you know, that, that conceptually, you know, those companies that you named, there is nothing conceptually that would prohibit them, um, you know, at a high level from, you know, from becoming QHINs. Now, there are requirements, obviously, there's a governance requirement, and there's experience requirements and all of those. So again, I'm not going, I'm not, I'm not saying that I know exactly, you know, whether they meet all those eligibility criteria, but there's certainly nothing preventing a private sector company, for example, um, that meets those criteria from, you know, from becoming a QHIN and providing those services. So stepping back then just to, you know, the first question you had, which is related to the business model. Um, you know, I think the business model is going to be um, to be, uh, you know, one of those organizations that um, has, you know, that, that has met a certain eligibility, uh, you know, sort of criteria that the federal government, uh, you know, supports and backs. And, um, and therefore, they're able to, um, you know, sort of market themselves as organizations that their participants can trust, that has met a certain bar. And so, you know, as, as organizations and especially in healthcare are concerned, you know, very concerned as they should be with privacy, with security, with the rules of the road of data, they at least have the comfort of knowing that, um, you know, that, that the organization that they are, you know, connecting with has met a certain bar and is required to meet that criteria. And that's those are a set of criteria that are monitored and, um, and are part of a nationwide network that allows, you know, I, I, hate to, I always hate to say seamless because seamless is really hard to accomplish, but that allows, you know, fluid information exchange with, you know, with other networks and with other organizations across the country um, in, 
you know, in what's going to be, uh, you know, sort of the closest we're going to come to a true nationwide network. Um, there's been a lot of, you know, uh, thought over a number of years over what is going to be that nationwide network. I think now that we're able to answer the question that this is going to be the nationwide network. So, you know, so that's, you know, that's one of the business models, I would argue. The other is the ability to provide value-added services on top of that. And, um, you know, and there's a number of organizations is the core, you know, sort of function that you need to be able to provide to be a TEFCA QHIN, which is just being able to connect up those organizations according to that contractual model and according to technical technical requirements and broker those transactions across networks. So network to network, um, being able to broker those transactions and deliver those and receive those, um, uh, you know, send and receive those to the, you know, to the participants. That's a core, you know, core function that you're, that you're required to do and you're required to do it for a number of the named exchange purposes like, um, you know, treatment, payment, operations, public health, um, you know, individual access, what have you. Um, but on top of that, you could, you know, have QHINs that uh, either already do or say, well, there's a set of, you know, now that I've got those connections built and I have those participants, um, you know, who, who want me to be able to provide that, I could provide value-added services on top. I could aggregate that data with their permission, for example, and curate the data, do quality measurement, do analytics, um, do a wide variety of things that, um, you know, that are on top of that, that isn't a QHIN requirement, but, uh, you know, but enables them to be able to deliver those value-added services, which would be a benefit to their participants and a benefit to the country, you know, overall. So, and I think there are a variety of ways that, you know, that there could be value-added services and in, in, uh, in that business model, but, you know, but we'll see, we'll see what happens. Um, the, the other thing that I would just mention, again, related to another question, is what kind of organizations do we expect? Um, you know, we certainly expect that the um, organizations that are networks today operating at scale um, are certainly early likely candidates. So you've got, you know, Commonwealth, Commonwealth um, the, uh, the e-health exchange, um, a number of uh, health information networks that operate, you know, in regions and in states, you know, could qualify. And there are other implementers in the care quality framework that, you know, could um, conceivably come forward and decide to do that. That's going to be up to them, but I'm just pointing to, you know, those are the organizations that sort of naturally um, already perform a number of these functions and already probably meet a number of the eligibility criteria and therefore could probably, you know, find it to be a relatively, um, you know, easy step, um, you know, to be able to step up and, and be able to pour on those things. And, you know, and one of the things that the 21st Century Cures Act specifically said is that the creation of TEFCA should be with minimal disruption to the market. So, you know, certainly that's one of the things that we wanted to do with TEFCA is to be able to say, well, where has the market been headed? How do we, you know, um, have kind of a glide path so that those who are already been moving forward in this can continue on that trajectory and you know and and uh, then participate in the TEFCA network. But you know we also do anticipate new entrants. I mean for sure. And and you know what we've done with the with the um, eligibility requirements is you know we have left it open. We've said well there's certainly a certain set of requirements you need to meet from a governance perspective and a business integrity perspective and a technical capability perspective. Um, but you don't have to you know, be a network today performing all of those functions today. If you can demonstrate, for example, that, you know, you're an organization that actually could do this and then you demonstrate the confidence and there is confidence that you could do this according to those criteria, then, you know, then we absolutely want new entrants to be able to, uh, uh, you know, um, be uh, BQNs as well. Great. And um, the trusted exchange framework is voluntary. What's the incentive for healthcare stakeholders to participate uh, given that there doesn't appear to be any enforcement mechanism built into that framework. Yeah, you got me um, <laughs> because because I really want them to. 
um, and they're going to break my heart if they don't do it. Um, no, uh, no, it's a, I mean, it's a great question. Um, and, you know, and the law specifically said that it's voluntary. Um, and so, you know, so we, we are rolling it out um, as, you know, something that's obviously voluntary. Now, there are a number of things, I think, that, um, that you know, could be real attractors, um, even though, you know, it is voluntary. Um, one is, I think, just the, um, the uh, you know, participation in something that has the, you know, the sort of the solidity um, and the trust um, that, that, you know, comes with the federal government. Um, being behind it, I think will be attractive to a number of, uh, of, of organizations um, because, and why would it be attractive to them? Because it's attractive to their participants. I think, you know, again, as, as you think about providers in the wild who are, you know, solo practitioner in Nome, Alaska, or, you know, in, um, in, in, in rural Mississippi or in, you know, in Boston, Massachusetts, um, there's always the question of, you know, this information, I mean, I've got this electronic information, increasingly, you know, I'm getting more and more interoperability, more and more information coming and going. How do I have the assurance that everything's okay? Um, how do I have the assurance that I'm not going to end up, you know, on the front page of the New York Times <laughs> with some massive data spill that I, you know, it was really hard for me to figure out, um, you know, exactly where all this information was going. And in a world where we're trying to push for more patient access, we're trying to push for more interoperability and more sharing of information. Um, there's an inherent risk associated with that, and so how do we, you know, sort of balance those, you know, those kinds of things? I think there's going to be a lot of participants, provider organizations, and others who are going to see the uh, the trust that comes with the federal government's participation as being a, a real value, and that's why I think their networks, um, you know, who uh, want to be able to offer that as a value proposition to their, you know, to their customers, are going to see that as something that's, you know, that's valuable. The other things that you know I think could uh, uh, will also be valuable is that um, you know one of the I think one of the you know key value propositions and again this is a part of the benefit I think of the of the federal government participation is that we can help to break through some of the issues that um, that the private sector has um, has had difficulty uh, you know achieving on its own and you know this isn't that's not a criticism of the private sector um, there's only certain things that you know the private sector you know as we know can get together and this is competitors getting together and agree on a certain set of things like all right we'll lay down our arms for things like provider to provider exchange for treatment purposes great we all agree on that let's let's do that and that's how you see you know commonwealth and the health exchange and you know and those networks form and care quality form and as well as you know state and local um, HIEs but once they get to other kinds of use cases that start to tread on competitive issues, um, you know, uh, and, 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 and businesses that they already have, and they start worrying about cannibalization of those businesses, um, then all of a sudden, you know, you start to get less and less enthusiasm for moving forward, and it's harder for them to, you know, move forward. Um, so issues related to payment and operations, for example, start to get a little trickier, and it's been harder for those networks to move forward. Um, public health. Has also been another area that's been hard for them to move forward on because of the regulatory complexity. So that's not a competitive issue. It's more about that's just the regulatory complexity of 64 different public health jurisdictions across the country. And you know, it's really hard for the private sector to sort of sort all of that out and who has the motivation. Um, and, and there's not, you know, what's the ROI to them of really trying to invest in that when it's really a system problem. It's not a problem that any individual company or even group of companies can solve on their own. So I think you know the the benefit of the federal government presence to be able to break those log jams and offer those as additional uh, you know services offered by the you know offered by the networks at scale will also be an attractor. Um, it'll basically be well, gee, Stefka does things that these private sector networks don't do, um, and that's why it's attractive to me. Um, the last thing I would point to is that um, you know we are also working very hard with our federal agency partners to. Um, uh, to define and help define what might be use cases 
um, that would uh, that that they that would allow them to participate directly in um, in TEPCA based exchange. Um, so, for example, you can imagine that CMS, um, as well as the CDC, I mean, I talked about public health already, um, and CMS with payment operations kinds of activities. Um, that and this isn't about regulations per se. I mean, there could be regulations, but I'm not, you know, but we're that's way too early to talk about. But um, this is just about their federal market presence or their market presence um, to be able to say, well, you know, Medicare, Medicaid, they're big actors in the market, and if they decide that, you know, the TEFCA-based exchange is a value. Um, to the government insurance program, and therefore to you know all all uh, all Americans, then um, then that might be an attractor as well, um, because everyone wants to you know sort of uh, everyone wants to and has to um, interact with Medicare and Medicaid and you know and, and those government programs. So I think there's a variety of things that could make it attractive, and if, you know of course hopefully you know maybe down the road I shouldn't say hopefully maybe down the road there you know there could be other incentives that are offered um, you know uh, uh, but again it's way too early to be talking about that. So, so maybe if we could touch on a couple of the key principles in the trusted exchange framework, uh, with the first being standardization. Uh, you noted that uh, you know QNs should prioritize federally recognized and industry recognized standards, policies, best practices, and and procedures. You know, given the uh, the efforts to achieve greater standardization has been going on for some time. You know, with groups like the uh, Argonaut Project back in you know the mid 2010s. You know, how much of the industry still isn't using federally or industry recognized technical standards? Yeah, no, it's a great question. So um, actually, I mean, you know, so, so um, to your point, uh, you know, a really, really large portion of the industry is using federally recognized standards for sure. Um, and, you know, and a part of that is um, it's both a bottom up and a top down. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, it's bottom up to the extent that ONC, for example, works very closely with the market and with standards development organizations to have the standards, um, you know, be matured and, you know, and focused, but through a consensus process, which is, you know, defined by ISO and, you know, and, um, uh, uh, you know, and other, um, you know, uh, international and, and US-based standards, um, uh, you know, setting organizations. Um, so we very much work on the bottom up to say, what are the things that people want to do? What are things that are emerging standards? And then how can we accelerate those to be able to get those to a place where everyone will agree to them? And then, you know, and then they get approved by a standards development organization, and then we're able to pick them up and say, all right, there seems to be a good degree of industry consensus around these set of standards now. Now we can put those into regulation to be required to, by EHR systems, for example, and be required, you know, for things like public health reporting um, and, you know, and, and quality measurement and things like that. So it's very much an iterative kind of process where we work with industry. Um, but, it, but uh, you know, but to, to your point, it's not static. Um, and that's why, you know, we need to keep moving forward. So there are new standards that, you know, that keep coming into play. So FIRE is a great example of, you know, the Argonaut Project working on FIRE. That, you know, that work isn't done. I mean, you, you know, you start with um, the core construct of FIRE and there are certain things that are standardized, but there are lots of elements of FIRE that, um, that still need maturation. And once those are at a, at a degree of maturity, then you include those in what you could either, you know, call a standard that may or may not have, you know, regulatory requirement or something that does have, you know, a regulatory requirement, depending on the use case and, and what it is. So it really is a dynamic process and we just keep going, but we haven't had, you know, um, uh, you know, I think for the most part, um, and, you know, and I, prior to joining the federal government a year ago, I was in the private sector and help IT for 20 years. And, you know, so I kind of see it from both sides and, and I've come to the same conclusion, which is that um, because of the fragmentation of the really high fragmentation of the industry um, in, in healthcare and in health IT, um, I think that the industry appreciates and actually benefits 
um, from the uh, federal governments coming in and saying, here is that version of that standard, which we're just going to say is the standard that everyone you know should use um, for this particular set of purposes where we have authority. Because you know, often you just get these small variations, and and yeah. the, and the players don't care. They actually don't care. Is it you know version 4.1 or version 4.2? Well, I don't care, but <laughs> I'm doing 4.1 and darn, everyone else did 4.2 or, you know, and, and so if we can just say, you know what, do 4.1, then everyone kind of appreciates that. It's like, okay, great. That's off the table. Let me just move forward. I mean, you mentioned fire and, and, you know, everyone's, and that's been kicking around for quite some time as well. I mean, is, you know, is there a difference between, because if we look at the if TEFCA and the, and the common agreement, right, it doesn't, it doesn't require people to go to, to be on fire necessarily, right? It's, you know, but it's sort of built to enable fire over time. You know, can, can you just follow up, you know, there and talk about, you know, because it seems like everyone I thought has been already migrating to fire. So it, it's kind of interesting that, um, you know, the, the, this uh, fire roadmap was also released uh, kind of to help people move along. Maybe, maybe you can just touch on that real quickly. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so there's there's uh, you know there's a number of different puzzle pieces here um, that are at play and they complement each other. Um, so the fire, you know, so fire, you know, first off, fire. Well, it feels like it's been around for a long time. I mean, it really hasn't been around for that long when you when you think about you know sort of the history here. I mean, when we were, um, you know, I was uh, you know the uh, uh, you know part of the group that launched the Argonaut project, and we did that in January of 2015. Right, is when we launched the Argonaut project, and when we launched the Argonaut project at that time, if you, you I think the charter is still available on, on you know, on, on the website. Our charter said, you know, we need to move healthcare interoperability to API-based approaches. We need to, you know, have modern internet conventions and modern internet standards using API-based approaches for, uh, you know, for interoperability. And one of the things that we said in that charter is, we think that a pretty good candidate is this emerging standard called Fire, but it's too early to tell. We don't, you know, we're, we're not committing to that right now. We're just going to do a bunch of work to see whether we can, you know, um, uh, you know, demonstrate that fire actually is, is ready for prime time. And we made a recommendation at the time that we said that if ONC um, decides that they are going to make an, put an API requirement into regulation, our recommendation is that you not um, focus on fire yet because we don't believe it's ready for prime time. We, need, we still need to test it out. Now that was, you know, that wasn't that long ago, right? That was like seven years ago. Um, where we were saying, yeah, we're not even sure about this fire thing. We think APIs are cool, but we're not sure about this fire thing. So then you fast forward, Argonaut Project worked on the implementation guide, did rapid cycle, demonstrated that, you know, that, uh, that it actually was you know, ready for prime time. The Apple Health Record picked it up two years later, and then the industry started rapidly adopting it. Um, ONC, working in parallel, made a functional API requirement. So said, you know, we think this fire thing might be a good thing, but we think it's not ready for prime time. Um, and interestingly, all of the adoption that's happened with fire in the market today is without a requirement from the federal government to use fire. Um, there still is not, it, that, that requirement to use fire only comes into place this year, actually. It's just this year where, you know, where the ONC rule says that all certified EHR vendors who have certified APIs are required to implement a fire API. Um, and that's by the end of 2022. So that's where you think about when you think about TEFCA, and fire going hand in hand. What we did is we said, well, TEFCA isn't going to require fire. I mean, TEFCA is voluntary, and it's right there. I mean, it has no authority to require fire. Um, but you've got the ONC regulations on certification of EHRs that are saying, 
well, we can require fire <laughs> and that's what we're doing. So by the end of this year, yeah, that makes sense. every certified EHR is required to have a particular version of fire available. And that's what, and if you look at the fire roadmap, the timelines, you know, kind of dovetail because what we said is, well, on the fire roadmap, what we want to say is we should create network infrastructure to support these fire APIs, which we know are going to be coming into the market very rapidly over this year. And so that's why we said that that idea of facilitated fire exchange to support smart on fire apps, we want that to happen this calendar year um, to get pilots up and running this calendar year. Why? Because 2022 is the year of implementation of fire APIs by regulation. So that's how those, those two kind of work, you know, sort of hand in glove. Yeah, I see that. That makes sense. We also wanted to touch on privacy. Uh, one of the goals of the framework is for individuals to be able to access their personal health information. Yep. And as we know, when that data is shared among covered entities, it's protected by HIPAA. But once it's sent to an individual, it isn't. Uh, how do we ensure patient data remains safe and protected? Yeah, I mean, you know, in that in that construct, um, you know, the the hard answer is that we can't. Um, you know, and that's that's a, that's a real challenge. I mean, I think it's a challenge for us as a society, in general, and with privacy in general, is that we don't have a general privacy regulatory framework to protect individuals' data. Um, you know, once once it's in their control, um, and that again, that's not just not you know uh, uh, you know an issue related to um, you know healthcare information. It's any information that uh, you know that we uh, that we uh, use the internet to conduct with, and that we take possession of on our mobile devices or whatever it is. So now that said, um, you know what we've done, you know, with Tefka, for example, is um, is that we have said that you know for provider organizations that we or not provider organizations, I say service providers or technology developers who want to provide what we call individual access services. So the ability for you, Eric, to be able to say, you know what, I'd like to be able to request or query for my records over this Tefka network so that I don't have to go to the, you know, if you go to five different providers, so I don't have to go to every one of those five different providers and get username and password and, you know, go through all that um, uh, stuff. Um, or, you know, or connect to each of those portals, for example. Um, but I want to be able to just, you know, sort of make a single query and be able to get that information. Well, you could have, you could sign up with a service and there are vendors out there who do that. And we anticipate that they will, you know, connect into the, um, into the network. One of the things that we've done with Tefka is said, well, there isn't federal or state law that protects the information to your point, once it gets into the hand of the individuals, but we're going to try to use the contractual requirement of Tefka participation to kind of raise the bar and help fill in some of that gap. We can't fill in all of the gap um, because again, it would just be a contractual requirement. At some point you might raise the bar so high that no one wants to participate. And then what good has that done anyone? Then you've got you know, people who are just living out there doing whatever it is they wanna do. So we tried to strike a balance. So one of the things we did, for example, if you look at the common agreement, it says that if you are a, an entity that is not covered by HIPAA, um, you're still required to basically live by the rules of HIPAA. Of HIPAA. So you're basically required to have, you know, to, to live by the HIPAA privacy rule and the HIPAA security rule. And in particular, and we actually went one level higher for those um, individual access service vendors, as we said, you're required to demonstrate that you have gotten the consent of the patient to request or to transact over this network. That's not a requirement for, for a HIPAA covered entity, right? A HIPAA covered entity, basically, they're already covered by HIPAA. They don't have to get consent from the patient to do treatment payment operations. What we said is, well, for those who aren't covered by HIPAA, you know, we need to have some kind of trust, um, you know, that uh, you know that they have uh, gotten the consent of the individual 
Um, so anyway, so there's a number of things in there that tries to raise the bar through a contractual requirement for their participation. And again, we've tried to strike the balance of how do you have that be high enough that that'll be attractive to them, that they'll say, oh, well, yes, that imp imposes more requirements on me than I have to do if I live outside of TEFCON, just do it in the, in, out in the world. But if I do participate in TEFCON, maybe that makes my value proposition better to individuals that I'm able to represent to them. Hey, I'm a part of this traffic network. I have met those requirements. So you should trust me more than that vendor, you know, that other vendor who's not a participant in TEFCA. And that's gonna give you a greater assurance you'll actually get um, other organizations to, uh, to participate with me because other organizations are always hesitant if they don't know, well, who is this vendor? They claim that they're representing Eric Osaroff, but how do I actually know that they are? And therefore, you know, what we see in the market today is provider organizations don't respond um, to those requests because they're like, I have no assurance that that vendor actually represents Eric. So anyway, that's what we've tried to do with TEFCA to be able to say, how do we fill in that gap a little bit through the through TEFCA participation and the hope that that's a part of a value proposition and not seen as a burden um, you know, for all of those organizations. And just to clarify, uh, can digital health app type companies that consumers use be required to be covered entities? We have no, I mean, they can't, you know, we have no authority to, you know, to wave a wand and say, you're a covered entity. Um, you know, the HIPAA law, um, you know, that was 1996 defined what, you know, what are the entities that are, um, that are uh, uh, regulated by HIPAA. Um, so, you know, first off, that would be an OCR decision, not Office of Civil Rights, not a, not a, you know, an ONC decision. And second, that's actually instantiated in law, you know, who's regulated by HIPAA. So that would require a change in the statute or, you know, a rulemaking or whatever to, um, to do that. So it's not, you know, it's not as if someone can wave the wand and say, all of you are covered entities now. Or it's not as if someone can volunteer and say, I'd like to be a covered entity. <laughs> it's like, well, well the, law, the law says you either are or you aren't. <laughs> um, so that's why we put in the contract that you need to, if you're gonna participate, participate in this network, you actually have to follow, basically have to follow the rules of HIPAA, of the HIPAA, you know, of the HIPAA um, rules, um, even though you aren't actually a covered entity. Right, uh, so, you know, if we take everything that, you know, we've discussed so far, um, you know, and, and you kind of touched on it a little bit earlier, you know, what, what do you think, see coming out of this? In, in particular, if we start to have this real network of QHINs and have this higher level of interoperability, you know, you touched on some of the add-ons, value-added services, you know, what are some of these new and innovative services do you see, you know, emerging as a result that creates opportunities for, for new company formation to, to come out of this? Yeah, sure. So, you know, in general, I think, you know, any company that, um, that you know, that can take advantage of, and I mean that in a good way, um, I don't mean that in a bad way, um, that, you know, that can offer opportunities um, um, where they are able to, you know, sort of aggregate information in an authorized way um, and be able to do good things with it, value enhancing things with that information, um, either, you know, through the aggregation of the information or being able to provide better access to the information or value added services on top of that. Um, and being able to have a network where they are able to easily get access to the information again, according uh, you know according to a set of rules um, that everyone agrees to, um, you know, then I think that this is a valuable business proposition for them in, a, in, a, in an innovation platform for them. So, for example, um, when I was you know when I ran um, an organization called the Massachusetts Health Collaborative in Massachusetts, we had a clinical quality data warehouse, and one of the things that we did. Is, um, is we joined the Massachusetts statewide HIE called the Mass Highway. Um, and there was a fee that we had to pay to join that. 
Um, but one of the reasons that we did that is that once we were connected, now we could basically go and sell our services to everyone else on the network. We could say, we don't have to build a separate interface to you. All you have to do is send the information to us over the network. No additional cost to you whatsoever to get the data to us. Of course, we charge prices for value-added services on top, but it's basically like you know being able to say, I am now a store in the shopping mall. I don't have to worry about parking. I don't have to worry about you know all the other stuff. I don't have to worry about people coming into the shopping mall. What I need to do is get the people who are in the shopping mall to come to my store. That's now my problem. And that creates, you know, that takes away a whole bunch of that infrastructure kind of stuff and, and a whole bunch of the friction of just, you know, being able to directly uh, appeal to customers, takes the cost of um, the transaction, um, you know, down to the minimum, uh, you know, sort of commodity level and allows me to focus on what value-added services I can provide on top and demonstrate um, that, that, you know, is that that's over and above what really should just be commoditized, which is just the access to the data, the appropriate access to the data. We shouldn't be competing on that. That, that really ought to be commoditized. So that's the idea here is how do you commoditize all of that so that people can really you know, offer those value-added services on top. And uh, last question for me, now that TEFCA has been published, uh, what are the next priorities for ONC in the coming year? I know the administration broadly has made equity a priority. Uh, what else is on your radar? Yeah, I mean, you know, well, certainly, um, uh, you know, certainly the, uh, I mean, I'll just go, you know, in order a little bit. Um, you know, certainly, you know, pushing forward with TEFCA, um, you know, is a is a key priority. Um, uh, helping the industry adopt the information blocking rule and all of the associated requirements related to that um, is a big priority because that's that's complex, but I think is a real turning point for the industry in terms of the um, obligation to share information with other parties. Um, and that takes a lot of work. Um, and so, you know, we're doing it, uh, everything we can to help educate the industry. Um, you know, about those, what those requirements are and, you know, how they can, uh, you know, how they can work their way through those to get to the place that we want to be where people feel that, you know, the obligation to share information with other parties and not try to hoard information, um, you know, for competitive purposes. Um, the other thing, you know, and, and health equity is certainly a big area and that's, you know, related to um, data itself. So we're doing a lot of work in standardizing data, um, which we always do, but, you know, with a particular focus on social determinants of health and health equity related data, uh, like um, social determinants of health data related to, um, you know, sort of life circumstances, housing assistance, food assistance, um, uh, food security, you know, issues like that. And we did publish in July, um, the uh, beginning of a set of guidelines that, you know, that will hopefully turn into requirements for the capture of structured social determinants of health data in EHR systems, um, as well as SOGI data, sexual orientation, gender identity, and then we're working on, you know, how do we get greater consistency in the capture of race, ethnicity, language data, so that you're able to put all of that together and be able to identify where there might be, uh, you know, health inequities that are turning into healthcare uh, disparities um, in the delivery of care and in outcomes. And also, how can you develop uh, interventions that help you try to, you know, sort of head off issues before they um, before they become, uh, you know, healthcare outcome types of issues. So. Being able to integrate better with social service agencies, for example, is another area that we're looking at. Um, another, the, the other area that's a little bit more nascent, um, but we're starting to, you know, be uh, uh, take a very serious, good, hard look at it in the area of health equity is uh, algorithms and algorithmic bias. So, you know, we don't um, right now. Uh, you know, there are many federal government agencies who do a ton in algorithms and in AI and machine learning. Um, you know, like NIH and FDA and you know a number of agencies do. Um, but, you know, but from an ONC perspective, we're, you know, we are the only federal agency that has the direct connection from, you know, both a relationship perspective as well as a regulatory perspective 
with electronic health record vendors and with the providers who use them. And as we know, as we think more and more about algorithms that are being used in healthcare, what's the source of that information? Well, it's the electronic health record systems. That's where, that's where that information is coming from. And those are systems that are regulated by ONC and the data that's in, that's in them, uh, much of it is regulated by ONC as well. So in a way, there's you know almost no way that we can't start to get involved in that discussion about well what are these you know what are these AI tools um, you know how should we be thinking about the appropriate use of those how should we be thinking about um, being able to be more transparent about biases that may exist because every algorithm has bias and that's just a statistical phenomenon but how would a user of an AI system you know understand what was the data that this, that this algorithm was trained on? What inherent biases might there have been in the training data that a user should you know, be aware of? And then how are those used? And how can that just be disclosed to those users? Because the EHRs are not only the source of the data, but they're also the vehicle to deliver those algorithms in use where a clinician you know, actually has functionality that has a whole bunch of algorithmic uh, you know, sort of uh, horsepower behind it. How do we you know, sort of think about that in a, well, in, in a way as well? And you know we want to be very very careful. We certainly don't want to you know don't want to stifle innovation, but we want you know to think about is there a greater transparency that we can give to the industry, um, just so that uh, you know just so that everyone has a, awareness of the appropriate use of those algorithms. So that's an area that we're starting to get into as well as we uh, you know as we move forward. Great, hey Mickey, I, you know I think we're kind of at the time here, and uh, just wanted to thank you so much uh, for your thoughts and uh, your insight here and uh, helping us understand better sort of, uh, you know, where the, you know, the agency is looking to to move forward with and uh, looks like you got your, your plate full here in the in the coming year or so. So um, just wanted to, to thank you so much for for being on our, our podcast today, and uh, hopefully uh, have you back as a guest sometime in the future. Yeah, well, uh, thanks, Charles and Eric, and, and uh, uh, hopefully I, I did help you and and, uh, and your audience uh, understand it better. <laughs> um, and I'm you know delighted to uh, to to come back and um, and uh, you know keep the conversation going. So thank and thanks so much for your interest. Thank thank you, and uh, yeah, thanks everyone for listening. And uh, you know, hope you uh, join us for another podcast in the future. Thanks for joining us. Stay tuned for the next episode of Cowan Insights.